Palazzo. This morning we return to Mahamaitri, great loving kindness. The aspiration and the resolve that we can all find happiness and the causes of happiness. So, now to say just a few things that are familiar. Hedonic well-being, never so important. But we're able to feel well in the body, well in the mind. Live in a peaceful surrounding. These kind of things have enough to eat, all of our basic needs being met. And for this understanding cause and effect, it's really crucial, absolutely central. And to my mind, that is just the, the tremendous strength of modern science, of navigating, that is learning what's going on in this natural world, what's going on in the natural world of our bodies and the bodies of other people, the surrounding environment. What's going on? And what are the patterns? What's the pratita samudpada, the, the patterns of causality, of dependent origination within the natural world? And how can we understand these so that we can flourish in this world and follow those causes that give rise to our hedonic well-being and avoid those like illness and poverty and so forth, social unrest, conflict and so forth, uh, that we can avoid those. So humanity really has benefited tremendously from science and then the practical applications of science and technology, especially these last 400 years. Tremendous boom. And then for Dharma, I would maybe... Perhaps we, you know, I've been wondering what kind of label should I give to science, and I'm really not content yet. But do you know one that might not be bad? Hedonic science. And then Dharma, of all kinds, Christian, Jewish, and so forth, and then some that don't have a religious name to them, maybe we can just call that eudaimonic science. Maybe. Because what are the causes and conditions that give rise to eudaimonia? What are the causes and conditions? Not the strength of science. Just as agriculture and so many other things are just not the strength of any spiritual tradition. It's not, you know, that's not their strength. But then there we are living in this world where both are so crucial. So the pinnacle of this pursuit of eudaimonic eudaimonic well-being, of course, is wisdom. As Shantideva says in the ninth chapter, everything that's preceded this, the teachings on bodhicitta and all the first five of the perfections, the paramitas, are all for the sake of the sixth one, perfection of wisdom. So as we move to this cultivation of great loving kindness, let's link this up now with realization of emptiness and specifically the union of Shamadevipashana, because that's where you get the lasting value, where it's durable, where it's profoundly and irreversibly transformative. Vipassana by itself just doesn't have that, and Shamadev by itself doesn't have that, right? But that union of Shamadevipashana. If we really wish for ourselves and others, may we find genuine happiness and its causes it's durable, it's lasting, it's not just a little peak, and then we lose it. It's there, it is. The, the, the strategy is perfectly clear, it's transparent. That fusion of shamadevipassana, the realization of insight, the realization of emptiness by way of insight, dependent origination, and because of the reality of dependent origination, therefore everything that dependently arises must be empty of inherent nature. You know? So... I think there's a strong link there. 
as with compassion, may we all be free of at least blatant suffering, suffering that's in our face, that hurts. Shamat is really the great boon, the great retreat, the great respite, right? A moment of peace, where when you're just dwelling there luminously, having achieved shamatha, there just is no suffering in sight. You're there in this really quite spacious domain of your own substrate. But there in your surrounding environment, this empty vacuity, this luminous vacuity, there's no suffering. You really have a time out. Right. But then we must venture back into the world. And for that, the only way to be in the world, actively participating, and to find happiness, is really to know reality as it is. And so that calls for realization of emptiness. So let's link those two. Let's plunge into the practice. Releasing, grasping all the way through. Body, speech, and mind. Settle each one in its natural state. Now letting your awareness rest in its own state, sitting upon its own throne, let your awareness brightly illuminate the space of the body. And whatever appearances, whatever sensations, feelings arise within that domain, this subdomain of the substrate, closely apply mindfulness. to this space and the appearances that arise within it. While withholding all conceptual designations, all labels, 
Observe that which is empty of concept, empty of names. And therefore empty of body. Sustain the flow of this mindful knowing without distraction or without grasping. And with your eyes open or closed as you wish, direct the light of your awareness to the space of the mind and to whatever mental events, objectively appearing phenomena such as mental images, mental conversation, subjective mental impulses, Observe the space of the mind and whatever arises therein. Once again, while withholding all conceptual designations, all thoughts, all names, and observe that which is empty of names and empty of concepts, empty of mind.
Now withdraw the light of your awareness from the space of the mind and from its contents. Withdraw the light of awareness into itself. Withdrawing from all appearances. And now attend closely. to this awareness right now. Awareness of the past no longer exists. It's not real, not now. Awareness of the future doesn't yet exist. So it too is not real, not now. The awareness of the present is incapable of being aware of itself in the present, just as the blade of a knife cannot cut itself, a flame cannot illuminate itself, a fingertip cannot touch itself. So can the present moment of awareness not ascertain itself either. So examine closely where is awareness to be found. This real awareness that exists in and of itself, if not in the past, not in the future. And if it's unobservable in the present. Is it not utterly unfindable? therefore unknowable. And therefore empty of any true existence.
Now let your awareness illuminate the world of sentient beings, each one striving like ourselves. For happiness. Hedonic, and in some cases, eudaimonic. Each one wishing to know what are the true causes of happiness. What will really make me happy? Since the essential nature of the minds of all sentient beings is pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, then why couldn't we all, all sentient beings, find happiness in its causes when it's so within reach? May we all find happiness and its true causes. Drawing from the depths of your own awareness, the ground of your awareness, arouse, if you will, the resolve, the commitment, the promise. I shall bring each one to happiness and its causes.
And may I be blessed by the Guru and all the awakened ones to enable me to carry through with this resolve. And with each in-breath, imagine this light of blessing in the form of radiant white light converging in from all sides, above and below, in upon the space of your body and mind, permeating, empowering, energizing, enabling. Filling to saturation point. As you breathe out, breathe out this light in all directions. Imagine each ray of light doing exactly what needs to be done to guide each one, to help them find their way, find the path. With each outbreath, let this aspiration and this resolve flow. And moving into this realm of possibility. Imagine each sentient being finding the path. By knowing reality as it is, following the path to their own awakening, their own perfect flourishing.
release all appearances. Let your awareness rest in its own luminosity. So returning very briefly to that first yoga, the, among the four yogas on the path of Mahamudra, the yoga, of course, of single-pointedness, that one out of four covers a lot of, a lot of territory. It covers the entire path of accumulation, small, medium, great stage, and all four stages of the path of preparation. In fact, Kamachamaramache says that when you come to the culmination of that first yoga, You'll feel you're almost you'll you'll feel like you're almost a Buddha. That you you feel this must be the yoga of non-meditation, which is the culminating one. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> but that shows how grand it must be. But that's covering a lot of territory. The whole path of accumulation, the whole path of preparation. That's a lot. And it's said throughout all of Buddhism, this takes an enormous amount of merit. Call it energy, call it momentum, call it whatever you like, but. It needs a lot of jazz, a lot, a lot of energy there to move through that degree of purification of the mind and that evolution that takes place. And so practicing vipassana, and of course the practice of vipassana, the realization of emptiness going into in meditative poise, the realization of emptiness coming out and practicing this dreamlike samadhi. So as much as possible you're maintaining that insight as you're attending to what everybody else calls the real world. You know? That would be that is absolutely crucial. And there's great merit in that, clearly. There's great merit in that. But it's just not possible without the union of Shamati Vipassana. That's just utterly fanciful, right? It's got to be the union of those two. Therefore, Shamati is obviously indispensable. But it's not enough. It's not enough, as powerful that, as that is. There must be also a corresponding growth, a maturation, a ripening, a development of bodhicitta. And so how better to cultivate, to deepen the, the bodhicitta than through these four, these four measurables and then the four grades. And it's with those two together, the skillful means and the wisdom, and then, especially through Vajrayana, as much integration as possible of those. That moves you through. That moves you through. So, today's Thursday, which means we have one more week. One more week here. So we've had seven weeks of breathing in, seven weeks of being in retreat, withdrawing from the world, you know, with a few hiccups on Sunday, I think, but some more or less, withdrawing in. A time to come into shamatha, time to cultivate our best approximation of meditative equipoise, of really going deeper, but a temporary withdrawal, a, a seven-week retreat. But of course, the time is coming soon when we must go out, we must breathe out. Right? Breathe out. 
And it's very likely that as we're breathing out into the Phuket airport and breathing out into any, everywhere else we're going, that we'll find oh, that the mind center is receding in our rearview mirror. <laughs> and that's just where my shamatha was. <laughs> I think I left it in that room over there someplace. Oh, bye-bye, as we're heading off over the horizon. So we may feel we're kind of leaving our shamatha behind. That as they say, as one door closes, another one opens. Time to breathe out. Time to breathe out. Breathe out into the four measurables. Breathe out into the four greats. Embrace fully what's coming. Because without the breathing out, there's no breathing in. Right. And if we are really quite intent on moving along this path and not just having an eight-week retreat, it's got to be that balance. You know? So... For those of us here, for those, I know some of the yogis around the world who are in, in full-time retreat now are listening by podcast, and others as well. There are times when reality rises up to meet us, and it's telling us, now is not the time for shamatha. At least, that's not the primary emphasis here. Not time to let it go. Not time to say, okay, I'll just give up and ruminate. But reality is not presenting, yourse- presenting itself as something quiescent, quiet, solitary, simple, a conducive environment. In which case, reality is rising up and telling us, you need to balance out now. Now engage, mindfully, with relaxation, stability, and vividness. But then manifest it. And manifest it above all through the four measurables, through the four greats. Because it's only in this way that you're going to be able to develop enough merit to actually achieve shamatha. And it's only through shamatha that you'll be able to deepen your practice of the four measurables, the four greats, and finally bodhicitta. So if we can be so like a gymnast, like a a gymnast or a very fine adept of yoga or qigong and so forth, people have really trained their, their, their bodies, or some dancers also, who have just this body that just seems like it's all water, not in the sense of lacking strength, but just so fluid, so resilient, so adaptive, that whatever is coming up, Reality always being in flow. Reality is never rigid. It's always flowing, changing moment by moment, right? And if we're responding in a similarly fluid way, saying, okay, what's up, what's up, reality? And we're always there, flexible, smooth, resilient, supple, ready to rise up and like a dance, but let reality lead. <laughs> Don't try to lead. <laughs> we have to take the feminine. We have to take the yin role. Let reality lead. And then follow the steps. And see from moment to moment, day to day, how can I dance with this? Because reality is always dishing something. One more opportunity to practice Dharma. Sometimes it's pleasant. And sometimes it's hard. It's really hard. But it needs to be. It needs to be. So let's practice Dharma all the time. Give up attachment to this life. Let your mind become Dharma.